Last week we talked about how, what boundaries were and, and just kind of looked at a number of different things. This week we're going to take a look at how they develop. Last week was boundary problems, that's what it was. This week we're going to take a look at how boundaries are developed and then we'll go into some of the things that go wrong. Boundary injuries, what things damage boundaries in young children and adults. And there's a number of different things and we'll go into those. In order to understand boundaries better, it's helpful to always look at how they develop. What happens at what age, what stage, and why is it that some people seem like they're stuck in a previous stage? So we're going to talk a little bit about that. David said in Psalms 139, 23-24, to Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. What David was saying was, help me to understand why I sin. Lord, show me the evil stuff in me, because I don't always know what, what's, what I'm doing that's wrong. So he's, he's praying, and he's basically begging God, saying, Lord, show me what it is I need to change in order to be more like you, because I don't always see it coming, and I make bad decisions. So that's kind of what he's saying in those verses in today's language. The past is your ally to repairing your present and ensuring a better future. This is why we look at why things happen. If you work in a hospital, they do a lot of things like, uh, they call it med, there's a word for it, med education errors. And a lot of people get all upset because they think, well, they're just trying to catch me, so they'll fire me. And he said, no. It's kind of like with OSHA and OSHA incidents and OSHA tracking. They want to know every time somebody gets hurt so that they can look at what caused this to actually happen. They don't believe that people are doing this on purpose. You know, No nurse is going to give somebody a pill or medicine on purpose to actually hurt them. That's That goes against their whole grain of who they are. So what we try to do is we look at, well, how did this happen? What steps took place prior to that happening that we can help set up some kind of protocol that stops it from happening again? Same way with safety and OSHA incident type things. They want to know what caused this injury and then take a look at it. Is it faulty equipment? Do we need to put something in place? Well, when you start to talk about counseling and you start to talk about boundaries, you need to do the same thing. You go back and you look at how the boundaries should develop, but then you look at why do I have a problem with this area? At what age or what stage did it happen? It might help you understand what needs to change. For instance, we talked about it a little bit last week. Children who have been sexually or physically abused very young, they don't have good boundaries, and for good reason, because they were violated early on before they even understand boundaries, and now it's like, this is life, this is what happens to you. So there's a lot of confusion uh, when people get damaged, and especially young. So your past can be your best ally to changing who you are right now so that your future will be more productive and better more healthy, more Christ-like. Boundary development is an ongoing process, yet its most crucial stages are those in the very early years. Boundary development is an ongoing process, yet its most crucial stages are in the very early years. And we're going to look at this a little bit more. I actually brought in another, another type of research to kind of support what the book is saying. Proverbs 22, 6 says, 
Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Now, most people have the belief that if I'm training this child in the ways of Scripture, and if I'm training this child and I'm teaching them right and wrong, he'll never sin and go against God. That's not what it's saying. What it's actually saying is if you train up a child in the way that he should go, the key word there being the child, you're helping that child learn their strengths, learn what their gift is, and helping them to understand their gift that God's given them. Because their gift's going to be different than yours and mine. Now, there may be some truth to the other part when you teach children right and wrong, when you teach children in a, in a healthy environment. Granted, they're going to know when they cross those lines, but their Scripture is actually talking about teaching them to understand the gift that God has given them. Every child has a different talent, has a different gift, has a different personality. Our job as parents is we're just taking care of them until they become the adults that they're supposed to be. Um, we're stewards is the way I've heard it used before. We are stewards of our children. We should be helping them to understand God has a plan for you. You need to understand what your gifts are. You need to understand what you do well and what you don't do well. And then always be looking as you're going through these stages of development. It is being a partner, is what this verse is saying, is being a partner in helping young ones discover what God intended for them to be and helping them reach that goal. That is really more of what this verse is saying. You become a partner with your children, not in the sense of their best friends, but you watch them. You study them. You see what piques their interest. You see that they're either outgoing or they're not outgoing. You see that they're very talented or gifted with mechanical type things or kinetics for sports. You start to watch those things and you understand this is going to develop their skills and you help them to do it. You're a partner with them. Your job is to make them the best, you know, as far as we're concerned, the best believer that they could ever be and have a lot of gifts and talents and use to reach people for Christ. 1 John 2, 12-13 says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name, Christ's name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. Now, what do you notice about what he's saying? It sounds like he's repeating himself, doesn't it? I write to you, young men, you children. What he's trying to tell you is that every stage of, the, of your growth in Christ, in life in general, there's going to be a different responsibility, a different task, a different understanding. You know, as, as fathers, when you get older, you don't go out and do all the stuff that those young boys do because you can't. So your whole focus changes. Theirs is one of exploring and doing and trying. Yours as a father, when you get older, is going to be one of, of watching them of thinking about and dreaming about what they're going to become. Your, per your perspective changes. You look at your life and what you used in your life and how you handled your growth, and you try to help that individual that you're teaching understand what their growth might be, what might God might want them to do. So John was even pointing out that you need to look at each age and development that everybody goes through individually, separated out. He could have just said men, <laughs> right? Men. He didn't. He, he, he chose to call children, young men, fathers. He's pulled out that component from men. And, and, and he wanted them to know, you need to understand to you. I'm writing to you because now a father is older than the child. He didn't say because you have known the father because the child doesn't know the father yet. Not fully. Young men 
older men have known the Father if you've walked in, in the Scriptures. You know him. You know who he is. Your goal is to help those young boys, young men, those young girls, understand their relationship with Christ. Boundary development is specific. It's distinct phases that you can perceive. Boundary development is specific, distinct phases that you can perceive. I think the writers of the New Testament were trying in their way to say, we need to be patient with one another. We need to be patient with our children. We need to be patient with our spouses. Because not only does every individual have boundary phases that they need to develop, but think about it. As they get older and they get married, does, do the boundaries change in a marriage? Oh, yeah. You've let somebody close and intimate with you that you don't let other people. So there's another boundary change. That's young adulthood. You're learning intimacy. You're learning how to interact. When you get older yet, you become leaders. You become grandparents. Your boundaries change again. You're letting young children in. You're letting them get to know you in a way. He's just given a term to something that's always, I think, been in scriptures, and we just don't always pull it out and say, this is something we need to realize. He's given it a term of boundary development. Our most basic need is to be connected, connected to some unit, have a sense of belonging, to have a spiritual and an emotional home. Our most basic need is to feel that we belong. Young children, when they're born, infants, their most basic need when that, once they start to grow is that they know this is my family. Young believers, people who come to know Christ, it's important that they understand when you cross over into the spiritual realm that they feel connected to a body of believers. That's really important. When we look at Genesis 2.18, the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Again, the Lord saw it's not good for people, for that particular, in that particular case, Adam, to be alone. He doesn't want us to be alone. We are a community type being. We need others. When you draw that attachment to others, though, attachment is the foundation of the soul's existence. You know, if, if someone were to say to you, Tell me who you are. Who are you? What do we do? Well, you say our name. I work here. I'm married to so-and-so. You hear what you're doing? You're defining who you are in terms of who you're with and what you do. We all do that without even realizing it. But when you look at that, meant, that thought process, the thought process is I need to belong to something and this is what I belong to. I'm married, I have three kids, I drive this car, we live in this home. We start to see it in the sense of possessions as well. The very first developmental task in an infant when they are born is to bond with their parents. That is the very first developmental task. But key to that task is trust. How does that develop? Well, when that new baby comes out, if we had Krista's baby was here or Marie's baby out here, we would see that it takes a lot of my attention. I have to hold the child. I have to feed the child. And the goal is that as that child grows older, what? Is to help them to learn to feed themselves, learn to walk, learn all the tasks, 
you know, the, the potty training phase, on into school, learning to share, all that stuff plays a role. Our goal is to teach them in a trusting relationship. Do they ever question whether we're giving them the right food? Sometimes they stick their face out and spit it at us, or their tongue out and spit it at us. It's like, yeah, <laughs> I don't think that's good. <laughs> but then you keep on doing it, and sometimes eventually they learn to eat it. You slip it in with the mashed potatoes, or you slip it in with something else, the bananas. You're teaching them that you need this food. But they have to trust you for that. And whether you realize it or not, that's where trust comes from, is when you and I do for one another, and we kind of respect one another's boundaries, and we kind of not only respect one another's boundaries, but we take precaution that we don't offend each other's boundaries. There's trust there. When you develop those relationships, if I come in here with an AK, whatever they are, 20, what are they, Rod? Rod AK what, 47? 47th? And I pull up, wow, they're with the trust. <laughs> what happened? Something seriously wrong with his brain. He came in here and blew away people that he knew. Do you know what I'm saying? That doesn't happen. You learn to trust one another. You learn to love one another. Although in other cultures that may be true, but it's not in ours. <laughs> the second developmental task for infants moving into the toddler years is autonomy or independence. You know, we start to encourage them to... Um, take baby food, to allow us to bathe them, to dress them, and they don't always like it, but they learn that we they have to allow us to do that. But the day comes when the parents are like, yes, they're going to the bathroom themselves. Yes, no more diapers. Yes, they can dress themselves. We get all excited when they get to this phase, and it's like, they don't need me to do that for them anymore. We want them to be independent. The author in this book referenced three critical phases of this process. He mentioned hatching, practicing, and reproachment. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on those other than just to tell you what he was saying they were. The hatching part of that uh, second developmental task for toddlers is the exploration of the world around them. They start to leave the nest and get out and start exploring. They want to go out the door and play in the yard. They want to do different things. The practicing has to do with once they learn certain tasks, whether it's walking or whether it's bouncing the ball or rolling the ball, they, they want to do it more and more and more. In fact, they'll drive us nuts. They start doing stuff off the wall, and you're like, stop it, stop it. <laughs> well, you wanted me to learn this. I'm playing by myself. We send mixed messages, don't we, too? <laughs> learn to play by yourself. Don't do that. <laughs> it's like, okay, you told me to learn this on my, on my own. Reproachment has to do with the child learning that the world can be a very scary place. You know, the first, that, that phrase I just mentioned, practicing, practicing, they're into the I can do this myself thing. You know, you hand them their coat and you want to help them pull on this, I can do it right away. Or right? you want them to, to clean up their, their bowl or something, I can do it. They, they, right away they want to take it away from you, this is mine. That independence has kicked in. But when they get into the re reproachment, now they start to go outside and they get a little further out. And all of a sudden they're getting maybe scared of the dark. And they realize, I can't do everything. And when my toy breaks, you know, I've seen, I remember when our kids were little, when the toy breaks, they would get mad because it wouldn't work again. And they'd come over, Daddy, fix it. Well, I'd fix it and they would break it again. But they started to realize, I can't do everything. 
It's really important during these phases that we have that trust factor solid, that we make sure they know that we are going to be there and we're not going to pull away from them because that's where they're developing their identity. A lot of psychologists feel that 85% of a child's personality is already in place by the time they're five years old. Most of their personality development has happened by that time. From that point on, they're going to take what they feel their personality is and go out into the world and start fitting that personality in with others. Parents have two tests associated with their children learning to, learning to say no. First, their child needs to feel safe enough to say no, which encourages them to develop their own boundaries. You know, we got into this a little bit last week. One of the first words that a child says is no. They want to set their own boundaries. Their independence is kicking into gear. We need to let them know that they can say no, but there's consequences to no. We need to allow them to set their own boundaries and say, I don't want to do this or I don't want to do this, but that doesn't mean they get away with it. You know, especially if it's something that needs, like a bath. You have to have a bath. You don't have a choice. You can be unhappy with me. You can be angry with me, but you're getting a bath. You don't try to force your children not to be angry because they're going to be angry. Now, what they do with that anger is the next step in the whole process. They can learn that, okay, I got angry, but mommy still loves me or daddy still loves me, and I'm not going to uh, do that anymore because I don't get the, first of all, I don't get the results I want. I don't get my way. Second, parents need to teach their children to respect other people's boundaries. You know, we see a lot of this when the kids get to the age where they start to share toys or not want to share toys. We have to help them to realize that you can't go over to your younger sibling and just grab it out of their hands. You might say, boy, this is getting really specific, Brad. Well, yeah, because if majority of what we learn in boundaries is developed by the age of five. So when I take that out into the schools, I've already cut this little bit of a foundation that I walk in there with. If I haven't learned good boundaries by then, I'm either going to be bullied or I'm going to be the pushover. I'm going to be the one that's taken advantage of. If I don't teach them that there's a time to say no and there's a time to say yes, or there's a time to mutually just agree, it may not be saying yes, just agreeing to disagree. Proverbs 19.18 says, Discipline your son, for in, that, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. If you don't teach your children the boundaries by the time they're into school, when you start looking at the kids who have trouble later in life, and they research it back, like we said at the beginning, your best allies to go back and look at your past. Most of them didn't have good boundary development by mom and dad and whoever else was in their life. Sometimes it was the adult's fault. There were things that happened that they just didn't take care of them. Sometimes things happen in life that we have no control over. and we, But it's our responsibility as adults to help them work through it. Eric Erickson described eight stages of development that every child will go through. As a parent, we need to help our child adjust their boundaries as they enter into each one of these phases. First, newborns through infancy. The goal is trust. The goal is trust. The next phase would be one to four. That would be toddlers. The goal is autonomy, doing things on their own with a whole, without a whole lot of 
help from me, but supervision is still there. Preschool age, the goal is initiative. I step out of my comfort zone and I start doing things with the other kids rather than waiting for somebody ask me. Or I get up and answer questions that the teacher has. When they get into school, the goal is industry. If you go in and study, just go walking down the classrooms and you watch what those little kids are learning, then you get up to about third or fourth grade. All of a sudden, something clicks in them and they start to like to learn. All the teacher has to do is say, this is your assignment. And then when she goes in, we're going to have, we're going to do this. It's like everybody gets their papers out. All of a sudden, they got initiative. They want to do it. They may not like school, but if they're healthy developmental uh, boundaries, when they go in, they know I'm going to get involved. All of a sudden, things like sports come into play. I can play t-ball. That's fun. I can play soccer. Little league, midget football. All of a sudden, they want, and they tell you what they want, because they want to start applying all the things they've learned in life so far. Number five, when they get to adolescence, the goal is identity. The goal is identity. At adolescence, the hormones change, the physical body changes. They're trying to understand why do I look different? What's my role? The boundaries start changing because you know, no longer are your kids bathing at the same time in the same room, especially at boys and girls. You start to teach them things like privacy, respect for other people's privacy. They start to understand this is my identity and who I am, and people will respect my privacy if I respect theirs. It's, you know, they get that whole concept. They are answering the question, who am I? Who, who, who am I? You know, I've been mom and dad's boy or mom and dad's girl up until now, but now I can do all these things for myself. Who am I? Who do I want to be? Young adults, the goal is intimacy. As they pass through in those, those years of who am I and they start to develop who I, who I am, part of that process is they start to notice all the differences between boys and girls. And they start to think about, you know, yeah, I want to get married someday like my mom and dad. Or I, you know, I want to have a house and a home and a job someday. You hear teenagers, you ask the teenager, what do you want to be when you grow up? They'll start giving you some ideas. But ultimately, the one that they usually say, most commonly say, is I want to have a family and a home like my dad and mom do. That's most commonly, that's what we hear. Once they move into those young adult years and they find their spouse, that do you think that's a boundary development? Oh my, is it. It's a very big boundary because I'm used to having my alone time and now my alone time always involves possibly another individual and, and scheduling that alone time. Middle adulthood has to do with gener generativity. When you get up into your 30s, going into your 40s, what are we thinking about? we got some folks in those age brackets. What are we thinking about? Taking care of our family, paying off the mortgage, creating an environment that's safe for my home, I'm starting to look at retirement. You know, I got a plan. Generativity says I'm building. I'm developing. I'm putting this all together so that once I move through this next phase, we don't think that, but that's really what it is. Once you move through this phase, your next phase is going to be that integrity and satisfaction phase. For those who are now in up above 60, 65, they look at their life and they say, "What? look at what I've done with my life. They're not out looking necessarily always to... to to go back to school and all that stuff, they're looking at 
what all have I accomplished in life? Is there more that the Lord has for me to accomplish in life? These are Erickson's eight stages of development. The reason we brought all these up, though, is because now we're going to look at some things that may go wrong in any of these stages that can cause boundary problems. I'm going to start off by just making this statement. Boundary problems are rooted in thousands of encounters with others, as well as in our own nature and personality. Three components affect boundaries as we go through all these different ages and stages of development. One is, I have all these encounters with people, and I've learned, I tell my son when he went to school, someone told me when I went to college, and I'm going to tell you the same thing someone told me, you can learn something of value from every single person you meet in school. You can learn something from everybody you're with. Sometimes, the majority of the times, it's going to be a positive. Sometimes you learn things that you don't want to have in your life. You can see that sometimes people have different anger issues, selfish issues, and that might be what you learn in that relationship and you realize, that's not who I want to be. So you change your boundary with that individual, take them out of your backyard, you know, through the gate, you limit the amount of time you spend with them because you don't want to be selfish and you don't want them using you. Nobody likes to be used. So there are different things that will happen to you as you go through all your encounters in life that's, that develop you to kind of say, this is good, this is bad. As well as, I have my own sin nature, my own nature what, that I was born with. And as well as, I have my own personality in the sense of I'm either extroverted or I'm an introvert. I'm either passive and a little bit on the reflective side, or I'm an aggressor and I'm out there trying to figure things out. There's different components of a personality that says he's going outward going or he's inward going. And, and in each one of those, there's two different ways. There's one that's more of aggressive and there's one that's more passive and reflective. There's one that's fearful and there's one that's confident. There's different personalities that also play into this whole process. Generally, the earlier and more severe the injury that happens to an individual, the deeper the boundary problem will be. What Erickson was trying to teach, and I think it was Maslow who even brought it up, when we come into this life, we have a certain amount of very little understanding of what's going to happen in life. It is developed by our parents. But everything that I learn is layered on in each one of those stages. It's layered on, and then it expands wider, and we are more open, and, and we feel more confident and safer to go out into the world in a broader sense. Somebody who's been damaged down here, they don't. Why? Somewhere along the line, trust was damaged. Somewhere along the line, safety was damaged. So it, it affects their boundaries as they try to go out. And what we have seen in studying children is the ones from the healthy homes, they come in, they're vibrant, they're trying to do it. The ones who have been in bad situations or have had trauma, lost a parent, there's been a divorce, there's been fighting, there's been aggressiveness in a home, that child comes in and they have a whole different body posture. They come in looking, what's going on here? Can I trust anybody here? So they've already been set back. Because those ones that came in, I'm going to take on life, they get out there and they get way ahead of the ballgame. They're grabbing on the new stuff because they have learned healthier boundaries. The person who has been damaged, though, gets stuck. I'm not going to go past that second pew there. Those other kids are out running everywhere, but I'm not going past that second pew. 
because I can see everything around me within that second view. So you start to see that if it's damaged down here, it affects how wide and the flex fluidity of and the flexibility of what's up here. And that's kind of what they were trying to get you to understand in chapter four is that boundaries get damaged and it really affects people in a bad way. Boundaries are built on freedom to refuse and or confront situations that are encountered in life. Boundaries are built on the freedom. If I want to go past that second pew, I will. If I don't, I'm just going to chill. But there's no reason why I won't. It's just maybe my personality is I just like to be passive and watch everybody else run. Okay? They're built on the freedom to say yes or to say no. Proverbs 27:17 says, "As iron sharpeneth iron, so one man's iron sharpeneth another." You know, we use that a lot here because we need healthy relationships around us to demonstrate first of all this is how you interact. There's another portion of scripture in the Bible where it talks about older women teach your younger women, older men teach your younger men. And the point that it's making is, as people come up through these stages, the older should be influencing the younger on, you will get through this. I remember an old man said that to me when I was in, working at TAFCO down here. I was trying to learn the process, and it was difficult, and then the door kept on bending. I was so frustrated because I couldn't figure out what was making the door bend. And he came up, he just leaned over the top, and he said, this too shall pass. <laughs> Basically, he was telling me, don't get bent out of shape. You'll figure it out. That's the way life is. When hardship comes, don't get so panicky that you limit what you can see. This too shall pass. In fact, that's a portion of Scripture, but I think he took it out of context. This too shall pass. Just bide your time. Those kids will grow up. They'll move out on their own. There will always be another job. Don't let it bring you down and, de and debilitate you. When developing your child's boundaries, it is crucial that their disagreements, their practicing, and their experimentation not result in the withdrawal from the love of the adults. We're going to talk a little bit about how you and I impact our kids if we're not careful. I have seen this over and over where the kids hit that phase where they want to do things even more on their own, adolescence, 13, 14. They get really stubborn. And when the parent can't convince them otherwise, what do they do? They sulk. They get upset. What is the message I'm conveying to my child when I do that? Only when your behavior is good will I love you. If your behavior is bad, don't come around me. Now, does God treat us that way? No. And we are their first reflection of God. How are you influencing your children, whether they're small or whether they're adults? What boundaries have we taught them? Parents need to stay connected to their child even when they disagree with them. I remember when one of mine was really getting into the rock a aspect of it. And I would say, I don't have a problem with you liking the, the rock music. I do have a problem with the words in that song. Because whether you realize it or not, not only in the music, 
but he was really into video games. And I would walk down and I'd hear some of the language going on. <laughs> what are you playing? <laughs> oh, it's just a game. I said, I think you need to listen to those words because you're so intent on beating this game and when that language comes up, you start playing with other people, it's going to come out of your mouth. Ah, won't do that. I said, it will. I said, you need to hear the message of those songs that you're listening to. Not in the sense of really liking the message, but you need to put up the filter and say, I like the music, I don't like the words. But we would disagree, but I didn't withdraw. I'd like to hit him, but no. <laughs> I think we all have those urges. <laughs> when parents disconnect for their behaving, misbehaving child instead of staying connected, in dealing with the problem, God's constant love has been misrepresented. What we're basically telling them, there is a time when you're not lovable. There is a time that you know, we're pulling away. We're, we're telling them, or we're re reflecting to them, that there's going to be a time where God doesn't want to have anything to do with you. And that's just not true. God wants us to confess our sins and come to him and get back on track. When parents pull away from their child, in essence, they are practicing spiritual and emotional blackmail. A lot of these statements were in the book, but I wanted to pull them out to make sure we understood what they were saying. If my withdrawing love and withholding love is an attempt to get that individual to do something, then I'm teaching them emotional and spiritual blackmail. I am teaching them that it's okay to blackmail somebody else. Where do you think that will be the most dangerous? Marriage? Relationship? If I'm mad at you, I don't want to be around you, I'll just go and do my own thing. It's, you're just basically punishing them. When parents tell their children it hurts us when you're angry at us, they are making the child responsible for their emotional health the child becomes the parent. And I hear that quite often. You're really upsetting me. I wish you wouldn't do that. You know, they'd already set the boundary. The child acts out. The parent gets upset and gets quiet. The child gets his way. And he moves on. The child throws a temper tantrum. I, I don't like it when you do that. But then what do they do? They reward them. When, if you'll calm down, I will give you the. Think about the boundaries we're setting when we do that. What are we teaching them? When children feel parents' withdrawal, they readily believe they are responsible. I did a, a very lengthy research paper in graduate school on the effects of children, single parents on children. Now, when I set the preface, what I found out was in the research, most of the data was on divorce. That's where most single parents' homes are. The second one was military families. They treated them as because dad's always gone or mom's always gone, that child is the being dealt with by only one parent. And some of the effects there is that they realize is that, you know, the Bible says two are better than one because when one is weak, the other can pick the other one up. The same is true in a marriage. What makes a healthy marriage is when one has had enough, the other one takes over. But when there's only one parent at a time at that child, what happens is the child knows 
they have all the energy. They wear you down. They can get what you want. The outcome of the study was that the degree in which the children were damaged was the degree in which there was only one parent. So basically what they were saying, the more time there was only one parent, and that ch depending on how much that parent was down with some type of, and they would call it maladaptive behavior, in other words, sick or depression or something was wrong, they were just totally wiped out. The more that happened, the more there was problems in the child's life. The more it had a, a, a negative impact. And I thought that was interesting. And, and they didn't draw this conclusion, but the more I thought about that research, I thought, you know what? In essence, because of the way the parents were handling it and there was only one, the child was taking on responsibility to be the parent. The child was changing the perception. They felt when the parents divorced in most cases, especially dealing with children of divorce, they felt they were responsible. Not long ago, I was talking with a teen. His parents are still together. But he's very quiet and backward and doesn't know why. The more he talked, the more we realized that he did. He took this boundary pattern and said, if I stay out of the room, it, I don't hear the fighting. And they're fighting about finances, and they talk about since they've had me, things have been worse you know, financially. So if I stay out of the room, if I stay back in my room and hide, there's no fighting. Well, that's the way children think. Was there fighting? Most likely. He just didn't hear it. But in his mind, he couldn't deal with the, with the fighting, so he went off to himself. So if you think about that, how does my relationship with my spouse impact my children? And vice versa, back and forth. Children have a way of taking on ownership of certain things when there's, there's a negative problem with the parents. The opposite is true when parents become hostile to, towards a child who desires independence. Children feel pressured into people-pleasing behaviors and boundaries. And what they're saying is, as that child gets older, and I, my perception is that they're going to get hurt, so my need to control them so they don't get hurt gets smothering. And what I'm actually teaching that child then is that Mommy's in control. I have to please mommy. And then when we get older, that's going to transfer into marriage. When my spouse is not happy, you know, that's not good. I need to make sure I'm taking care of them. We see a lot of this in the addictive lifestyles. When you have the codependent and the dependent, that is at the bottom, that is at the very first level of boundary development in those personalities. Alcoholism is one of the key areas that is affected by this type of a problem. When parents punish their children for, for his growing independence, the child will usually retreat into hurt and resentment. When I punish them because they did something that, that you know, was outside of my trust for them to do, then they're hurt and they become resentful. I hear this a lot in teens when teens are saying, my parents don't trust me. Some of it might be real. Some of it might be there's the parents are just too controlling and not teaching them how to move into the next stage of development. Discipline is the art of teaching self-control by using consequences. You don't stop loving the child when they misbehave. You set limits. No Xbox for a week. I thought my son was going to die when I did that one time. I said, no Xbox for two weeks. You can't be serious. <laughs> I am serious. He made it through okay. 
It was torture, but he made it through. But I wasn't going to stop loving him. I just said, you won't follow rules. You won't go to bed on time. You won't do this. No Xbox. That's at the core of it. Give you a few verses. Hebrews 12, 10 to 11. Our father disciplined us for a little while as the as they thought best. But God's discipline for us disciplines us for our good that we may show share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I mean, I think it speaks for itself, but I think the point here is that discipline shouldn't be pleasurable. You know, I see parents giving different types of correction, corrective modes. I'm like, that's not discipline. <laughs> you took away his cell phone, but now he's down playing his video games. You took away this, but now you can do this, but you're not going to do this. I'm like, that's not discipline. Or when they get older, sometimes you and I, um, we don't like to go through hard times. Maybe we've made some bad decisions, and right now we're fighting with our spouse or we're fighting with our boss. But the real issue here is God's trying to show us something, and if we don't realize that it's not going to be easy. You know, discipline isn't something that you like, but if it's going to teach you not to do it again, and it's going to make you a more loving person in God's eyes, then we need to endure that discipline. Colossians 3.21 Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Uh, this one I had to work on because I like to tease my kids. My wife would stop me periodically though and say, where do you draw the line on provoking though? You're provoking them to be angry and to be a fighter. It's, it's good to have play, but you need to separate the two. And that was hard for me because I came from a home where there was no mercy. <laughs> it was the survival of the fittest. I had to learn with my kids not to go too far. Fathers, do not exasperate your child. Instead, bring them into the training and instruction of the Lord. Very similar to the last word. You know, do not frustrate your children to the point that they don't even want to have a relationship with you. Hostility towards our children usually results in one of two things. They either become overly enmeshed in other people's lives or they can't say no. They become aggressive individuals, like we learned last week, aggressive controllers, or they become avoidant compliant. They just do it because it's easier to do it than deal with the stress. What starts that? Hostility from the parents towards their kids. Or they react outwardly and become controlling people just like their hostile parent. You know, they'll either do one of the two things on the previous slide or they'll become like the parent. You're saying, well, you're blaming the parents. Yes and no. I mean, you are who they're going to try to mirror as they're growing up. You are their God when they come into this world. You, you do everything for them. So, essence, you're the first reflection of God himself. So you have the biggest impact. Rearing children is very serious. But it's also very serious to be in a body of believers and make sure that you're also impacting the younger as well. Or anywhere you go for that matter. Whether you work in caring for people in a treatment facility or wherever you're at. The way I treat these people reflects whether I know God or not. Overcontrol occurs when otherwise loving parents try to protect their children from making mistakes by having too strict rules. 
Too many limits. So there's an over-control. It frustrates the child and, and, and makes them angry because they see other kids then doing things that they wish they could do and they're not allowed. Some of that is healthy. Some of it is not. Some of it's healthy in the sense of you don't want them running the streets at night with teens. Some of it is, you know, you can't go out because I said so. Well, be careful because I said so can backfire. Once again, the opposite is true. If boundaries are too lax and the parents are distant, the child can become overly aggressive. There have been a number of times I've talked to people and they'll tell me that they just can't stand passive people. And the more you talk to them about it, you'll find out they had a mother or a father who just really didn't take any initiative to help anybody You know, in the home. He didn't take part in the leadership. Passive. It was always mom's job to discipline or it was always dad's job. And I've, I've heard it more or not that they're frustrated. Boys are frustrated, frustrated with their mothers because in their mind, their mother shouldn't be treating them the way they are. You got a teenage boy who says, "Mom's coming down on my left and right," and he's getting angry. And I know in one of my developmental classes, they said because God meant the, the leader of the home to be the man, the disciplinary should be the man. In life, people research has found that people, even sick people, mentally unstable people, will react differently to a male therapist than they will to a female therapist. Whether you want to say that's just a cultural thing, I believe that God made it that way. He made it that men were to be the leaders of the home. And when mom has to take on that leadership, the boys become resentful because they're looking at it as, you're, you're disrespecting me. I'm a boy. I'm a young man. and You're disrespecting me. Where if dad's coming in and he's laying down the law, okay, now the real law pronouncer is here and he's putting it in place. And it's not any disrespect on men or women. It's meant to be a team approach. But we have found... That's what's going on in the minds of the individuals. There ain't no woman's going to tell me this. They have an issue with authority. Where did it come from? It came from their childhood when mom did all of the correcting and dad was passive. Dad wasn't involved being part of the team. That can be a whole topic in and of itself. <laughs> Inconsistent limits send conflicting messages to other children causing boundary confusion. Alcoholism would be a good example. When dad is drunk, he's one way. When dad is sober, he's another way. Everything's inconsistent. When he's passive, he may let me have what I want, or it might be the other way around. He hurts me. The other thing that can happen, we've talked about a number of different things that impact, that in, impact boundary development. Now we're going to talk about just one that we have no control over, a trauma is an intensely painful emotional experience that is a character pattern rather than a learned problem that causes serious boundary problems. When there's been a traumatic injury, whether it's a car accident, a death of a parent, sometimes a horrible divorce can be traumatic to the child. It's going to affect their boundaries significantly. Isaiah 61, 11, or 1 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captive, and release for the dark, from darkness for the prisoner. What Isaiah was saying was, God wants to take that trauma to help you, to pull out of it. Trauma like death of a parent, divorce, abuse, damage, 
abuse damage two central foundations necessary for boundary development. They are safety and control. I have a certain amount of control in my life, and there's safeness in that control. When you have those kind of traumas, that's gone. Anybody could get hurt, and they know it. Our own individual character traits can contribute to the boundary developments. In other words, if I'm introverted, if I'm extroverted, however, I'm going to have a different reaction. Our sinful depravity contributes to boundary development from which only Christ can deliver us. The one that we didn't talk a lot about, but every one of us is born with a sin nature. And when we start to get into that identity phase, especially, we were trying to figure out who we are. We want to explore boundaries. We want to push this boundary or that boundary. You know, we, it's, no, it's no secret when you uh, hear about the girls who have date rape and all these things. They want to be with that certain guy because that's what everybody's wanting. But when they get out there, then they end up getting hurt and they get damaged. Romans 8.2 says, Because though Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life, set me free from the law of sin and death, only Christ is the one who's going to be able to bring us out of that. Only Christ is going to bring us out of our sinful depravity, bring the kids out of a trauma. As we look at this whole concept of what we talked about today, we are trying to get an understanding of boundaries develop at different ages. And every age stage development has its own goals that they have to meet. If they miss those goals because of some kind of trauma or because mom and dad weren't there or mom and dad weren't able to give healthy ones, it's going to affect them. So as I'm looking at myself and I'm looking at the boundary problems I may have, I would encourage you to spend some time of introspection looking back. What went wrong? Look at what those boundaries developments were supposed to be at that phase and then start asking the Lord to show you, all right, this is what I need. How do I get there? How do I apply what I've learned?